0: If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to the Gospel according to Luke, where we're in chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verses 5 to 25. The Gospel according to Luke, chapter 1, picking up in verse 5, down to verse 25, and ask you to follow along with me as we read from God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, beginning in verse 5. and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe My words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when He looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of the Lord given to us for our good. May God bless the reading and the preaching of His Word. Let's pray together. Father, we ask for Your help now. We know that You hear us when we pray. Because the Lord Jesus is seated even now at Your right hand in heaven, having finished His work here on earth and awaiting the day when He returns to consummate His victory for His church. So we know that as we pray right now, You hear us. And that You delight to answer Your people when they ask in faith. And so we pray, God, and we ask with hearts that are believing, we ask that You would help us to hear the Word of God. To believe and to obey what You have said. And to see the Lord Jesus Christ in his glory, even here in this text. Father, please keep me from error. Please help me to say things that are true. And please help your people to hold fast to the truth in the scriptures and build up your church, God, in the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name and for his glory. Amen. Well, I know it's the middle of June, it's June the 23rd, but I. I'd like to ask you to think this morning about Christmas. In fact, next month we're going to sing some Christmas carols because you can't preach Luke 1 and 2 without thinking about Christmas. So I want you to think about Christmas this morning, specifically Christmas Eve. Growing up, I thought that Christmas Eve was one of the best days of the year. From the minute we woke up in the morning, my siblings and I would talk excitedly throughout the day, asking questions like, I wonder what's in that big box under the tree. And I wonder if dad's going to like his present this year. There was so much expectation wrapped up in that day. It made it one of my favorite days of the year. But if you think about it, friends, my siblings and I weren't really excited for Christmas Eve. We were excited that something better was coming tomorrow. In fact, that's why Christmas Eve is noteworthy at all, isn't it? It's because there's this expectation... That something better, something greater is just around the corner. Friends, as we come to Luke chapter 1, we find a similar dynamic at work in this passage today. As you heard in our reading just a moment ago, something significant is happening in Israel an angel announces the birth of a very important child John the Baptist all of the gospel accounts include this man John the Baptist Jesus himself will say that among those born among women no one is greater than John the Baptist and it all starts here in Luke chapter 1 you see it should be quite clear to you as we read these verses that something significant is happening in the nation of Israel and his name is John and yet just like the expectation of Christmas Eve, John is significant only because he signifies that something better, or should we say someone better, is coming. Friends, that's the key feature of this entire text. For all of the excitement, and and look, it is an exciting passage, but for all of the excitement, there's also this clear sense that John is not the point. John is not ultimate. John is significant only because of what comes after him. He will be great. There's no mistaking that. But even then, John is only a supporting actor in the unfolding plan of God. John is only the Christmas Eve to Jesus' Christmas morning. The main man, the center of attention, is yet to arrive. And so, as we consider this passage today, I think the word expectation captures the theme very well. The overall tone of this text is expectant. Expectant. There is the expectation that something greater is happening, that someone better is coming. So with that theme in mind, I want to work through these verses with you this morning by noting four expectations in the promise of John's birth. Four expectations in the promise of John's birth. Number one, there's the expectation that God is at work. That's verses 5 through 10. Number two, there's the expectation that God is preparing the way, verses 11 to 17. Number three, we have the expectation that God is to be trusted. That's verses 18 to 23. And then number four, the expectation that God is near to his people. Verses 24 and 25. Four expectations from the announcement of John's birth. We begin then in verses 5-10 through 10 with the expectation that God is at work. God is at work. The passage opens by introducing us to an Israelite couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And even in these few verses, there are a number of things that should stand out to you about them, You'll notice first of all that both husband and wife come from priestly families. Zechariah is a priest, we learn in verse 5, and his wife Elizabeth also comes from priestly lineage. Now, priests in the nation of Israel were divided into 24 divisions, and each division served during a week twice throughout the year. But since there were so many priests, whenever you would go to serve at the temple, they would cast lots to decide who got to do the fun stuff, who gets to go in and burn the incense. And in verse 9, we learn that Zechariah's lot has been chosen. This means, friends, that we meet Zechariah on what is likely the most important day of his religious life. Zechariah has been chosen to go into the temple sanctuary and to burn incense before the living God. And this was something that a priest was allowed to do only one time in his entire life. After you burn the incense in the temple, that's it, you're done. You don't do anything else. It's just over. It was a high and holy day for the people of God and for the priest in particular. And that's why the people are, in, are gathered outside in verse 10 and everyone is praying. So from the start... Luke wants you to feel the gravity of this moment. Zechariah is going in to do what he's only going to do once. The whole multitude of people are gathered outside praying. You can feel the expectation. Here we meet not only a priest and his wife, but a priest that is preparing for the most important day of his ministry. Luke's description continues as we also learn that Zechariah and Elizabeth are faithful. Verse 6 says they were righteous before God and they walked blamelessly in His commandments." Now we have to be careful not to misunderstand Luke's point. He is not saying that Zechariah and Elizabeth were sinless. He's not saying they were perfect people. Neither is he saying that their works somehow saved them from God's wrath. Rather, Luke's point is that Zechariah and Elizabeth were faithful. They feared God. They honored His Word. They obeyed His commands. This is not a sinless couple. You won't find one of those in the Bible. But it is a faithful couple. And Luke goes out of his way to highlight their obedience. But it's the last detail about Zechariah and Elizabeth that grabs your attention. They are childless. Elizabeth, we are told, is barren. And by this point, both her husband and herself are advanced in years. That's the Bible's nice way of saying they're old. How long have they waited and prayed for a child? Well, we don't know, honestly. The Bible doesn't tell us. But it's not hard to sympathize with them, whether it's a child or some other answer to prayer. We know what it's like to ask God and then to wait, don't we? We know what it's like to listen and hear what seems to be only silence. And for Zechariah and Elizabeth, this situation would have been particularly painful. This is the first century A.D. and in first century Judaism, there were some strands of thought that said barrenness was a sign of God's judgment. That's a gross misreading of the Old Testament, but still, some people thought that way. And that's why Luke goes out of his way to highlight this couple's faithful character. They weren't hiding some sin. They weren't suffering under the judgment of God. It's actually the opposite. This was a couple that had remained faithful even though their years were hard. So priestly family, faithful, but childless. But friends, this is where the theme of expectation comes into play. As heartbreaking as the situation is, Elizabeth's barrenness actually makes us more expectant, not less. Think about it for a moment. Zechariah and Elizabeth are faithful Israelites. Where did Israel's history as a nation begin? With an old man named Abraham and his barren wife, Sarah. And what did God do? He gave them a son, Isaac. And through that son, God established the entire nation of Israel. Barrenness led to the fulfillment of God's promise. Or think about that point in Israel's history. After Joshua, after the judges, when the nation was struggling and there was no leadership in Israel, whom did God use at that point? He used a barren woman named Hannah. And through Hannah, God raised up the prophet Samuel who would lead God's people. Again, barrenness led to God's provision. Friends, it's actually a pattern throughout the Old Testament with Sarah and Hannah being prime examples. When God decides to act mightily for the sake of his people, he often did so in precisely this way, in these very unlikely circumstances. And what that means here in Luke chapter 1 is that we should be expectant that God is up to something. As you read verse 6 and you hear that Zechariah is old and Elizabeth is barren, you should instantly think wait a second, I've heard something like this before. Genesis. I've heard something like this before. It was right before God acted to fulfill His Word. Maybe He's about to do that again. In fact, friends, that's the point of these opening verses. I'm convinced Luke gives us all this detail so that we will see how God is already working. He's already at work. And this should be a great encouragement to us, brothers and sisters, and it should remind us not to judge God's purposes too quickly. We shouldn't judge God's purposes too quickly. It is easy, isn't it, to assume that God is silent or that He has somehow lost sight of His people. Circumstances start to pile up. The years wear on. The prayers go unanswered. It's easy in those moments to assume God's not working here. He's busy somewhere else. He's not listening. But if we learn anything at this point, friends, if we learn anything from verse 6, it's that God's ways are not our ways. His timing is not our timing. What seems like silence to us may very well be the outworking of God's plan. None of Elizabeth's barren years were wasted, in other words. And in His grace, perhaps that moment will come when He does intervene with power to work for the sake of His people. And so, verse 6 even is asking you, friends, is calling you to trust God. Won't you trust God, brothers and sisters? I cannot guarantee that God will answer every prayer you have ever prayed in every way you want it answered. No one has that kind of guarantee. But the testimony of the Bible does guarantee that God will not abandon you. And that often, He's already working. Already. Going ahead of you and working. As we come to verse 11, we find that second expectation that confirms and clarifies the first one. It's the expectation that God is preparing the way. God is preparing the way. We said that Elizabeth's situation should make us more expectant that God is up to something. And in verse 11, we find that's true. Without any advance notice, God sends an angel to speak with Zechariah. The priest, as you might expect, is afraid. Verse 12, people are always like, I wish God would manifest himself to me. No, you don't. You be afraid. Every time an angel shows up, people are afraid. Zechariah is afraid. What might this mean? Is this the judgment of God? Did I mess up the incense? Why is there an angel in here? He's afraid. Then the angel speaks and reassures Zechariah. Verse 13, there's no reason to be afraid. Instead, there's a reason to rejoice. God has heard Zechariah's prayer. Elizabeth will have a son. But not just any son. This son will play a significant role in the plan of God. You'll notice in verse 13 that the angel tells Zechariah to name the child John. Whenever God names a person in the Bible, it's typically significant. And that's the case here. The fact that God names the child tells us that this son will be set apart to God for a particular purpose. And that means we should focus here for just a few minutes and ask ourselves what we might learn about this son whom we call John the Baptist. So let's just notice a few features about John. First of all, we should notice John's role In verse 14, the angel tells Zechariah that he will have joy and gladness at the child's birth. And in fact, many people will rejoice when John is born. Now on the one hand, this makes complete sense. Zechariah and Elizabeth have waited for years for a child, and now a son is coming. So of course, they're going to have joy and gladness. But what about the angel saying many people will rejoice? Is that a hint that perhaps something more than the natural joy of parents is at work? Well, yes, that's exactly the case. If you look back to the Old Testament prophets, you'll find this phrase, joy and gladness, connected with the coming salvation of God. The prophet Isaiah is a good example. In Isaiah 35, the prophet speaks of God bringing His people back from exile. Do you remember that? In the Old Testament, God's people broke the covenant, and so God kicked them out of His land, and He sent them away into exile, away from His presence. In Isaiah 35, the prophet says, God's going to end the exile by bringing you back home, and when He does, you will have what? Joy and gladness. Then in Isaiah 51, the prophet looks forward to the day when God takes all of the deserts and all of the waste places of the earth and He makes them like Eden again. When He makes everything new. When that happens, what do God's people find? Joy and gladness. You see, the Old Testament prophets use this same description to capture what would happen on the day that God visited His people to save them. And that, friends, is why the angel says, John will bring joy and gladness to many. It's because John's role is to signal that salvation is coming. John is the forerunner of the Messiah. John is the voice crying in the wilderness that Angie read from Isaiah 40, prepare the way of the Lord. There's joy and gladness with John because his role is to stand and to declare that God is coming and He's coming to save. Along with John's role, we should also note his character. We should note John's character. Look again at verse 15 and listen to what the angel says. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. The Old Testament law prohibited priests from consuming alcohol when on duty in the temple. And the book of Numbers described a special kind of vow that a person could take for his entire life to abstain from alcohol. Those restrictions signify that a person was devoted to God. And that appears to be the case here with John. From even his conception, John is set apart as a servant of the Lord. And in this life of devotion, John will receive divine equipping for his work. The angel says John will be filled with the Spirit from his mother's womb from the moment he is conceived. Friends, in the Old Testament, Filling with God's Spirit was often associated with a specific task. God's people weren't indwelt by His Spirit continually. That's a new covenant blessing. God's Spirit was given for a specific task in the Old Testament. This is a very Old Testament kind of scene. John is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit for a specific task. That's his ministry. God's going to give John what he needs to do his work. And the the uniqueness of that is that he'll be filled from the womb. This is no ordinary child, in other words. This is no ordinary servant. This is again the forerunner of the Messiah. So John's role, John's character, that leads us finally to consider John's ministry. Look at verses 16 and 17 where the angel describes what John will accomplish. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. Friends, here we have the core of John the Baptist's ministry. It is the preaching of repentance. John comes to preach repentance and to turn people away from sin and back to the Lord their God. Again, in the Old Testament, this was a key step in God's plan of salvation. God Himself would send His prophet, and through that prophet's preaching, God's people would repent. They would turn back to God and God would save them. And that repentance would be seen at every level of life, from their relationship with God down to the relationships they have with one another, even to the most fundamental level of the family. I think that's why the angel mentions fathers and, and children. What's the core of human society? The home there? Repentance from God all the way down to the lowest level of human society or the most fundamental level. That's John's ministry. He comes to preach repentance. But here's the point we need to understand, friends. John's ministry is itself part of God's plan of salvation. John is not the Savior, but his message does pave the way for that Savior to come. In fact, verse 17 here in Luke chapter 1 quotes from Malachi chapter 4 where God promised to raise up a new Elijah a new prophet who would minister in the power of God if you know the old testament you'll know that Elijah was Elijah stands out among the prophets for those mighty acts of God that he did in the Lord's name And God said in the last days when His salvation would be ready to come, He would raise up a new Elijah, a greater Elijah, a better Elijah, an Elijah to come. That's Malachi chapter 4. And Luke's point here in verse 17 is that God is fulfilling that promise. God's keeping His Word. God's doing what He said. He's accomplishing His plan. John will be that new Elijah. And his ministry will once again signal that God's salvation is coming. And it is that note of salvation that concludes the angel's message. Notice the last phrase in verse 17. What will be the grand purpose of John's ministry? To make ready for the Lord a people prepared. John then comes, ready, comes to make God's people ready. John comes to make God's people ready. Ready for what, we ask? Well, ready for God Himself to arrive. Ready for the Lord to arrive to come. That's ultimately John's role. He gets God's people ready for the Lord Himself to come. He gets God's people ready to receive and to respond to the Lord when He arrives. Friends, this is very clear in the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 4, I'm going to raise up Elijah, and Elijah will get people ready for God Himself to come. This is one of the small pieces in the mountain of evidence for the fact that Jesus of Nazareth is God. John is preparing the way for God. Then Jesus comes. The conclusion is Jesus is God. He's the Son of God, the Savior, who comes to redeem His people. Understand, friends, this announcement here in verse 17 is the proclamation of grace and nothing but grace. Please do not mistakenly think that the Old Testament is just the story of God's judgment and wrath and then grace only comes in the New Testament. No. God's purposes among His people have always been grace. God promised the grace of this prophet in Malachi 4, and now God fulfills it. Here in Luke chapter 1, this announcement of John's birth is grace and nothing but grace. Remember, at this point in Israel's history, the people had not heard from God in centuries. It's 400 years. It's been 400 years since they've heard from God. The prophetic word has gone silent in Israel and the people were left to wonder when will God's salvation come? When will His word announce God's arrival. But now in the temple sanctuary with this unlikely father-to-be, God speaks. God breaks the silence. He speaks through His messenger. And God announces that He's raising up a prophet who will prepare the way. A prophet who will signal that God is coming. You see, it's, great. it's, it's grace. It's nothing but grace. God is coming to save His people. John's role, John's character, John's ministry... All of it, friends, is meant to tell us that God is preparing the way for the Savior to come. Now, as we step back for a moment from this announcement of John's birth, what should we take away from these verses? What should we take away from the angel's announcement? What's the connection with us? Well, there is a connection with God's faithfulness to His Word. And we're going to draw that out a bit more in the next section of verses. But for now, I I want us to, before we move on, I, I want us to see what John teaches us about greatness in God's eyes. I want John to perhaps even correct us about what it means to be significant in the purposes and plans of God. John is a significant figure in God's plan. John is great in the history of God's people. And yet, why is John great? Only because he serves the Savior. Only because he points people to the Christ. As John himself will say about Jesus later in his ministry, he must increase, I must decrease. Listen to me, brothers and sisters, that's true greatness. That's what it means to be significant. It's a willingness. It's joy even in using your life to put Christ on display. There's a lot of talk about finding significance in the world these days, and very little of it is helpful to you, let alone biblical. This is what God says is greatness. This is what God says is significant. It's using that brief span of time that you call life to make much of Jesus. No one in here is going to have the ministry of John the Baptist. He's unique. There's not another John. There's one John. But if you profess faith in Christ, then you are called to follow John's example and pursue this kind of greatness. You are called to the only kind of significance that matters. Spending your life to show people there's a great God and Savior and His name is Jesus Christ. That's true greatness. It's using this little blip of time that we call life to help others see the Lord. From how we act to the way that we work, from what we say to how we serve, from the things we love to the people to whom we minister, greatness is doing all of those things in a way that says, Jesus must increase, I must decrease. You cannot make much of yourself and Christ at the same time. It doesn't work. I think of a quote from C.T. Studd, the pioneering Christian missionary who devoted his life to taking the Gospel to the unreached. Studd said one time, only one life, it will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Brothers and sisters, that's true. That's true. Only one life. It will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. That's what made John the Baptist significant. He pointed the way to the Savior. And so the question then, as we even hear about John's coming and his ministry and his role and his character and how great he is, the question that confronts us is will we live that same way? Will we pursue the kind of significance that John models for us Where we decrease so that Christ can increase. The third expectation of the text comes from Zechariah's response, verses 18 to 23. It's the expectation that God is to be trusted. God is to be trusted. After the angel's message, Zechariah's response is surprising. He asks the natural question, but one that expresses some doubt. Notice verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Understand, friends, Zechariah is asking for a sign that confirms the angel's message. He wants a sign from God. This is a bit different from Mary's question that we'll look at next week. Zechariah is not saying, How is this possible, God? I'm really old. That's not what he's asking. Zechariah is saying, How can I believe this unless you prove it to me? How can I believe this unless you give me a sign? You see, Zechariah wants something more than God's word. Notice the angel's response in verse 19. The angel essentially tells Zechariah, My appearance should be enough. Notice verse 19. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good. News. So we learn the angel is Gabriel, who's played a significant role in God's plan before. It was the angel Gabriel who came to the prophet Daniel in Daniel chapter 9 to confirm and interpret the vision that Daniel had received. What's more, Gabriel is said to stand in the presence of God. So for created beings, Gabriel is as close to the Almighty as you can get, which means Gabriel comes with heavenly credibility. He comes with heavenly credibility. You want proof, Zechariah? You want God to confirm it to you? I'm standing in front of you. That's what he says. Even so, Gabriel proceeds to tell Zechariah that God will give him a sign, so to speak, but it's not the sign that Zechariah wants. Notice verse 20. Behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe My words which will be fulfilled in their time. And then immediately, that Word is fulfilled. Verses 21-23, to Zechariah goes out to the crowd, but he can't talk. He can only make signs. He asked for a sign. He's reduced to making signs because he can't talk. God's Word proves true. Now, why has God done this to Zechariah? Why make him mute? Well, on the one hand, it is a rebuke. Zechariah should have believed Gabriel's message because it came from God. He should have believed. And God is always trustworthy. So, on the one hand, this is a rebuke to the priest. On the other hand, this is also mercy, isn't it? It's mercy. When Zechariah's lips go silent, what does that say to the priest? It says that God will keep His Word. It says that God will fulfill His promises. So then put the two together. If Zechariah is silent just as God said, then Elizabeth will have a son just as God said. You see, it's, it's merciful. It's a rebuke and it's merciful. This is mercy in the midst of the rebuke. Even when God rebukes and disciplines His children, He does so with enough mercy to strengthen their faith. Again, before we move on, what should we learn from Zechariah's doubt? What is silent Zechariah saying to the people of God today? Well, friends, I would say that there's a warning here, or at least a caution. We should be wary of demanding from God more than what He has given us in His Word. We should be wary of demanding from God more than what He has given us in His Word. You're thinking, an angel's never showed up to me. No, you have something better than an angel, you have the Bible, the very Word of God. And we should be careful that we not demand from God more than what He has given us in His Word. Listen, I've, I've said before from this pulpit that God is not afraid of your questions. I've said God is not afraid of your questions. That God welcomes it when we ask Him how to understand Scripture. That, that God welcomes it when we ask Him how to put the various truths of the Bible together in a way that makes sense. God's not afraid of your questions. But here's an important clarification to that, friends. Here's an important clarification. There's a difference between questions rooted in faith and questions rooted in unbelief. There is a way to ask questions that essentially says to God, you know, your word's not enough. I want more proof. I want you to make sense of things on My terms according to My understanding and then I'll believe what you said listen to me, brothers and sisters, those kinds of questions are never right. And they're not good for us either. That's the kind of question that Zechariah asks here in verse 18. He essentially says to God, I'm only going to believe you if you prove it to me. If you make sense to me on my terms, then I'll believe. You've got to give me more than your word. And so the warning, the caution to us is we should be wary of demanding from God more than what He has given to us in His Word. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. You're not trusting in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to save you from your sins and to reconcile you to God. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. And perhaps maybe you've even thought before, well, I would become a Christian. I would believe all these things about Christianity if God would just prove it to me. If that's you, friend, then I would urge you to consider that God has already done everything necessary to prove His trustworthiness to you. He's already done everything necessary. He's given us His Word. And His Word never fails. Listen, becoming a Christian does not mean that you have absolute understanding so that everything in the universe makes sense to you. That's a definition for what it means to be God, not to be a Christian. Only God has absolute understanding where everything makes sense. But becoming a Christian does mean that we walk by faith and not by sight. To follow Christ, you do have to take God at His Word. That you are a sinner. That you cannot save yourself. That Jesus Christ lived a perfect life and died a substitutionary death and He rose again from the grave. And that He lives right now to intercede on behalf of His people. And that all who trust in Him will be saved. You do have to take God at His Word. And His Word is true, friends. His Word is trustworthy. And so even this morning, if you're not a Christian, My prayer is that God would open your eyes right now to see that His Word is true, that His promises never fail, and that in those rock-solid realities, God would give you faith. If you are a Christian today, I would simply ask you this question. And this may be a little pointed, but pointed questions are good. Are you you banking your life on what God has said in His Word? Or are you subtly, maybe even unconsciously, demanding from God more than what He has given you in Scripture? Here's what I mean. I often have believers say to me that they wish they had stronger faith. But then nearly as often, those same people admit that they have very little connection to the Word of God. I wish I had stronger faith, Pastor. How are you doing Take taking in the Bible? Well, I don't really read it. Friends, faith feeds on the Word of God. Faith feeds on Scripture. And God has not given you anything more or anything less than His Word. And so if you want to grow, if you want your faith to be strong so that it's not shaken by the seasons of life, then you have to go to His Word. There is no recipe for strong faith apart from the Scriptures. Just consider these verses we're looking at. What's going on in this passage? God is keeping His promises. I spent all week trying to figure out how to preach this one message. God keeps His promises. That's the point of this passage. In the Old Testament, God promised a prophet. Now in Luke chapter 1, God provides the promise, the prophet he keeps his promise. That's the Bible, friends. Old Testament promises made, New Testament promises kept. That's the Bible. God keeps his word. And that means, brothers and sisters, you can bank your life on the word of God and he will never fail because he always keeps his word. God is to be trusted. That's the expectation of the Bible. Friends, that's the initial expectation that starts the whole thing of Christian life is the expectation that God is to be trusted. That's what Zechariah is saying to us. God is to be trusted and we can trust Him because He's given us His Word that sustains us in the faith. That's expectation number three. Let's look at the last one and we'll close with this. Number four, the expectation that God is near to His people. The expectation that God is near to His people verses 24 and 25 give give us a closing word and it's a word that emphasizes the faithfulness of God look at verses 24 and 25 it's so brief you might miss it but it's incredible after these days Zechariah's wife Elizabeth conceived and for 5 months she kept herself hidden saying thus the lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people so god keeps his word doesn't he He told Zechariah he would have a son, and in God's time, Elizabeth conceives. God keeps His Word. Why does Elizabeth keep it hidden for five months? I don't know. The text doesn't tell us. But the text does tell us that Elizabeth praised God. After the long years, and it seems after numerous comments that caused her pain, Elizabeth can say that God has looked upon her. That's just the Bible's way of saying that God has come near to her. That God has remembered her and been gracious to her. And that's where I would like for us to end this morning. With this incredible connection. This this really does boggle my mind on some level. This incredible connection between the sovereign plan of God on the one hand, and a very personal answer to prayer on the other. This incredible connection. Who is John the Baptist? Well, he's the forerunner of the Messiah. He's the prophet like Elijah who will prepare the way for the Lord. He's the key figure in God's sovereign plan. He's the voice crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. But who is John the Baptist? He's also Elizabeth's son. He's also an answer to prayer. He's also a little boy who climbed up in his mother's lap and said, I love you, Mom. He's also a gift to this faithful Israelite couple. You see, friends, God's sovereign plan, which cannot be stopped and is carried out despite all human opposition, is worked out in real human lives so that the glory and goodness of God are seen not only in His majestic sovereignty that cannot be stopped, but also in His kindness to draw near to His people. Look, He could have dropped John the Baptist just out of heaven onto the earth and He could have started preaching, but that's not what He did. He gave him to a mother. He gave him to a father. And He said, My sovereign plan... Worked out in real lives. He's sovereign and He's near. He's majestic and He's kind. This is the God that we serve. And so, while we cannot guarantee that God will answer every prayer the way that we would ask, we can rest assured that God delights to draw near to His people even as He carries out His inscrutable will. That's the testimony of Zechariah and Elizabeth. God keeps His Word. God hears His people when they pray. But even more, that's the testimony of Elizabeth's son, John the Baptist. God has drawn near, and He's drawn near to save His people in Jesus Christ. And so therefore, we can trust Him. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that You would help us to trust You. That You would help us to bank our lives upon what You have spoken to us in the Scriptures. We pray, God, that You would help us to see the ways in which we have demanded more of You than what You've given us in Your Word. We ask, God, that You would even give us the grace of repentance. Just like John the Baptist came to preach repentance. We pray that You would give us the grace of repentance. That we would turn from sin. That we would turn, Father, from these wordless lives. And that we would devote ourselves to knowing You through the Scriptures so that we might then turn and make You known to the people whom You delight to draw near to and save. Father, please give us grace to sustain us in the faith we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.